Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Best Boss Ever podcast series. I'm your host, Carl Thomas. So the question is, who was the best boss you ever had? Why? And what did he or she do that resonated so strongly with you? More importantly, how are you applying what you learned? From veteran founders and CEOs to emerging next generation leaders, these men and women talk about their experiences in candid, fun, and insightful conversations. So stay tuned, because the hits just keep on coming. Mark Sisson, today's guest, is the founder of the popular health blog, Mark's Daily Apple. And he's the godfather to the primal food and lifestyle movement. He's also a New York Times bestselling author, The Keto Reset Diet. And along with his latest book, Keto for Life, he discusses how he combines the keto diet with a primal lifestyle for optimal health and longevity. Mark's also the author of numerous other books, including The Primal Blueprint, which is credited with turbocharging the growth of the primal paleo movement way back in 2009. After spending three decades researching and educating folks on why food is the key component to achieving and maintaining optimal wellness, Mark launched Primal Kitchen, a real food company that creates primal paleo, keto, and whole 30 friendly kitchen staples such as condiments, sauces, dressings, bars, collagen, and whey protein powders. All of them without any artificial ingredients, no added sugars, no partially hydrogenated or trans fats, no soybean or canola oils, and no artificial flavors, colors, dyes, waxes, or chemical preservatives of any kind. Just real food. But before all that, and yes, that's a long time ago, Mark was a world-class endurance athlete, finishing fifth in the February 1982 Ironman competition in Kona, Hawaii. And that's where this story begins. As Mark was competing, I was organizing triathlons, creating, promoting, and evangelizing what would become the Olympic triathlon format and distance. I co-founded USA Triathlon, as well as the International Federation, now called World Triathlon. These organizational structures were required to get our sport onto the Olympic program. And triathlon debuted officially as a full medal sport for both men and women in Sydney 2000. But it's what happened in between those moments that underscores our long friendship and mutual respect. We did television shows together. As a USAT board member, I insisted Mark take a look at becoming the CEO of our fledgling national governing body. And he did. The three years he spent leading that group absolutely set the stage for where USA Triathlon is today. He then focused his attention on nutrition, not just to be healthier and stronger through his primal nutrition startup, but to curtail and help administer stringent doping controls and protocols in a sport that closely mirrored cycling in terms of endurance requirements. And we all know the tarnished legacy of cycling. And to his credit, Mark has been a staunch and relentless advocate of clean racing worldwide, regardless of the sport. Wow. Hey, Mark, what a list of accomplishments. Uh, thanks for being here and welcome to our podcast. Thanks for having me, Carl. It's great to talk to you after all of these years. My goodness, it's been a long time. 
It has, and we've intermittently been able to speak over the years, but it's been great getting, you know, rebooted and reacquainted over the last several months. And your story is really a good one. So let's get right to it. You've been your own boss for what, 30 something years. So let's go into your way back machine. Who was the best boss you ever had or coach or influencer? And what did you learn? Well, so thinking about that, I have to say that my best boss was probably my first boss. It was this guy named Hermanus Swan, and he owned a summer cottage in Maine where I grew up. I was born and raised in a small fishing village called Booth Bay Harbor, Maine. And he would come as a summer resident. And when I was 13 years old, I fancied myself a greenskeeper. And I had a lawnmower and I had a lot of drive and passion to make money to be an entrepreneur. And he hired me full-time, 40 hours a week at the age of 13, to oversee his three-acre estate. And with that, he gave me you know, a set of instructions, which was never show up late, don't leave early, get the job done, and you have full reign over this piece of property, which includes learning how to use some of the equipment that, that was required to uh, prune and shear and trim and mow and edge it was an amazing experience as a 13-year-old to have this guy who was really kind of looking out for me. I mean, you know, who's going to hire basically what's, what's an eighth grader going into freshman year of, of high school on a 40-hour weekly mission with the charge of taking care of a, of a large estate. But it gave me a lot of confidence. It gave me a lot of discipline. It was summertime. It was summer vacation. And yet I had to get up at like, I had to get my own ass out of bed, you know, at like quarter past <laughs> seven and be ready to meet him. He would pick me up in his literally like a 1938 Packard oh, man. that he that he drove around town. So he would pick me up in the morning and drop me off after work. Anyway, it was a great experience. I learned a lot from it, not the least among which was the self-confidence that I could take on a task that I wasn't necessarily trained for, but was willing to learn. Awesome lessons at the age of 13. And for you to go all the way back there and call him out is amazing because those basic threads, right? show up on time, don't leave early, get the job done. And oh, by the way, you are going to learn on the job. Here's the, here's the mission. Here's the task. Here's your tool set. If you don't know how to use something, either figure it out yourself or ask. Well, you know, and how I've carried that through in my own business life as a boss is I learned early on to hire on the basis of enthusiasm and, you know, getting along with people, less on raw skills, because we always felt that skills could be could be taught, obviously within reason, but I, I wanted attitude, like first and foremost, on every hire that I ever had, and that's really what I learned from him. Great lesson, great lesson. So from there, what got you into your sort of endurance sporting endeavors? And let's fast forward to what led you up to that Ironman competition in 1982. Huh. Well, so again, growing up in a small fishing village in Maine, I knew I didn't want to be a, a fisherman. And I lived about two miles from school, and I found it just very convenient to jog to and from school rather than take the bus. Typically, I could get home before the bus would have dropped me off because of its route and have more time for myself. So for years, I had this routine of jogging to and from school with a book bag in one hand and through snow in the winter time. And it was a great, great training. And I was otherwise a fairly skinny, scrawny, small for my age kind of guy. And so I wasn't really cut out for football, basketball, baseball, hockey, any of these other sports. And I used to get brutalized in PE class in high school with, you know, the difference in size and sort of the, 
the bullying that happened. So when spring track rolled around freshman year and I went out for track and made the team and then wound up winning the mile and the two mile, almost every meet that I entered, I got a lot of credit for that. And so that sort of forged the future for me in terms of an endurance athlete. From there, I went to a private school for two years, uh, the Phillips Exeter Academy, and I wound up captain of the cross country team there. Then I went to Williams College and I captained track and cross country there. And after I got out of Williams, my running was going so well that I decided to postpone medical school, which had been my intent, and pursue training for the 1980 Olympic trials, the marathon. As we know, 1980 was the fateful year that Jimmy Carter decided he wanted to boycott the Olympics. So it was sort of a a little bit of a waste of time. But the training was such that I finished fifth in the U.S. National Championships in the marathon in 1980, qualified for the Olympic trials. But I was so injured from all the training, I realized years later that my body really wasn't cut out to be doing 120 miles a week, 130 miles a week, which we all sort of assumed it took to be competitive at that level. So my injuries kind of accumulated. And then a friend who had been a big wave surfer and a marathoner, his name is Ian Jackson. I don't know if you remember the name from the old days, but mm. he convinced me to do this wacky race over in, in Hawaii called the Ironman. So after some cajoling, I decided to train for that and went over the first year and, and did okay. I think I finished 24th the first year. It was 1981. And, and then with a year of uh, training in between that, I thought maybe I can go back and do a better time and a higher finish. And so I went back in February of 82 and finished fourth in that. And that was sort of the, the end of my endurance athlete days because I'd already been a marathoner for almost a decade. So it's kind of over putting myself through undue amounts of discomfort for no money, right? Right, right. Like you and I could obviously talk for hours and hours and hours about all the, the history of sport. One of the things we battled in those early days was the fact that because the Olympics were all about eligibility, you could not be eligible for the Olympics if you accepted money for competing in races uh, in track and field, for instance. Or swimming or water polo or any of the above. Exactly, exactly. So anyway, that's what got me to the end of my elite racing career, but it also began a whole new outlook for me on ways in which that I could be strong and fit and lean and happy and healthy and productive without all of this pain and suffering and sacrifice and struggle and all the stuff that you normally associate with training for endurance competitions. So I began a sort of a relentless charge to figure out what I call the hidden genetic secrets that we have, ways in which we can you know, build muscle and burn fat and shore up our immune system using the signals that come from food or from sleep or from sun exposure or from play. And this is right around the time that a late 70s, early 80s, I'd gotten really into the notion of first evolution. And secondly, the concept of you know, modern genetic science was starting to take hold. And it turned out that the research papers were starting to show that pretty much everything that changed as a result of different inputs in an experiment happened at the level of gene expression. It was these genes that were turning on or off in response to some, some variable that was introduced. Well, hold that thought a second. So I just want to make a point. You delayed medical school and ultimately never went to medical school, but it sounds to me like you embarked on a very aggressive, self-taught methodology where you took it upon yourself to do the research? A hundred percent. You know, the best thing I did was not go to medical school because among other things, I probably helped more people with my research and my blog and my books than I ever could have helped as a physician. So, but you know, as I got deeper and deeper into this research and started to uncover these 
what I call, again, these hidden genetic switches that we all have, it became my mission to kind of espouse this to the world and, and, and show the world that there are ways that we can lose weight and we can become pain-free and we can uh, delay aging and we can reduce our risk for heart disease and cancer and, and diabetes simply by altering some of the foods that we choose to eat and by choosing certain types of exercise and, and things like that. So with that, I created a template that I called the Primal Blueprint. And that was the name of my first book. And it was also the basis of my blog, Mark's Daily Apple. It was this way I could try to educate my readers, not necessarily on what the best way to live their lives was, but, but certainly a way that I could probably guarantee they'd get better results if they followed than if they were following the conventional wisdom of the time. And I became sort of known as a contrarian within, within medical circles. Right, right. You know, going back 15 years, I was very contrarian. Now I'm like, okay, you know, what I've been saying is now considered kind of mainstream and acknowledged as probably, you know, the, the truth. So it's, there's a bit of a vindication there for me. Well, clearly you were one of the pioneers, one of the early, early adopters of this notion, but you did it through validated research and you applied what you learned and it found its way into not only Mark's Daily Apple, which by the way, folks, it's a great blog. Just put Mark's Daily Apple into your browser. It'll pop right up, subscribe to it. It's worth its weight in gold. You'll learn a lot. You'll be healthier and you'll you'll thank us later on this from bringing that information to you. So you you thread this obvious passion and desire for understanding what happens at the gene level and you if you will reverse engineer that into a practical application of what to eat, what not to eat, when and how much to exercise the role sleep plays, the role sort of mental health, if you will, like play or laughter or, or cheeriness and all of that, that all threads together, right? 100%, yep. So as you're doing that, I'm going to call you out here because you were one of the, again, early pioneers, at least in our sport, of getting very focused on the travails of performance-enhancing drugs. We call it doping. It's still called doping in the vernacular at Olympic sport today. But you played a very significant role in the sport of triathlon, both at the national governing body level while you were the CEO and, and then post that. But you also took on a formal role with then the ITU, International Federation, now called World Triathlon. And sort of thread what you found, what you learned, how you applied sort of the nutritional aspect, and then you overlay that into your, you know, your protocols, uh, obviously for clean yep. racing and against drugs of any kind that would enhance performance. No, it's a great question. So going back to the beginning, I was always looking at ways to enhance my own performance, right? And I wanted to do it legally. So as we go back to the 60s and 70s, I was reading Adele Davis. I was reading books on nutrition, even as a teenager, trying to figure out you know, what to eat. And then Eat to Win by uh, Robert Haas was a big bestseller. I, I don't know if you remember that book. And he championed carbohydrates. And so I started eating a lot of carbs and figured that carbohydrate loading was the way to go. And that seemed to be the, again, the conventional wisdom of the day. Tim Noakes, Dr. Tim Noakes out of South Africa was espousing that as well. And I was looking at electrolyte therapy. You know, one of the reasons they thought you hit the wall was because your electrolyte balance changed. And so not only was there Gatorade, but there was, remember, ERG. Yeah, Gukinade, Gukinade. Gukinade, that's exactly right. They were all sort of 
mild performance enhancing substances. They're all legal. And then I was also looking at vitamin therapy. So I was doing 25 grams of vitamin C for some period of time, you know, always experimenting with things that I could do that were legal, that were not going to harm my health, or so I thought, and improve my chances of performing well, mostly by recovering better. With that knowledge of vitamins, minerals, electrolytes, hydration, carboloading, I got invited to participate in a nascent committee that TriFed USA was putting together to write a set of anti-doping rules for the USA Triathlon Federation. And this was, I think, 1988. I was, at the time, I was the coach of the Pioneer Triathlon team, which was one of the first professional triathlon teams that traveled around the world. So I was, Scott Zagarino was the, was the manager, I was the coach, and we, we had organized this team. It was pretty cool couple of years, but as a result of that notoriety and visibility and my science background, I was invited to participate in this committee to write the first set of anti-doping rules for the U.S. As you probably remember, I was sort of chosen from the committee to present the set of doping rules to the St. Louis meeting of the board. Man, that's like the Continental Congress, dude. That was such a landmark meeting. Yes, it was in many ways, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, um, So the board accepted this set of rules. And shortly thereafter, one Carl Thomas calls me up and says, you know, the board kind of liked the way you presented yourself at the at the meeting. Would you consider being CEO of the of the Federation in Colorado Springs? After thinking about it for a while, I said, yeah, I think that's a that's an interesting challenge. I'm up for it. So I packed up my girlfriend who became my wife while I was there and and we moved to Colorado Springs. And and that sort of began, you know, a number of different, um, I think, uh, shifts in the sport of triathlon. And certainly one of them was, was instituting these anti-doping rules. Now, in 1989, at the Congress of Avignon, where we formed ITU, I was the paid executive director of the, of the U.S. Federation, but I was also co-opted to start to create a set of anti-doping rules for the International Federation. I remember it well, like it was yesterday. And having had the, uh, the experience with the U.S. and starting to s- seeing some of the other federations, and, and mind you, at this time, there was no World Anti-Doping Agency. There wasn't even a USADA. There wasn't even a U.S. Anti-Doping Agency. There was Patrick Shamash, who was the medical director of the IOC, who would pull me aside and say, hey, Mark, you know, uh, what are you guys doing about triathlon? And can you help us? Because we don't know that much about some of these substances. So I wound up advising the IOC medical board on things like androstenedione, which was becoming popular among some of the athletes and, and had some benefits that would probably be seen to be illegal today. And it was a really interesting time. So I anyway, I, I linked up with Craig Massback. Now, Massback was with USA Track and Field. And Massback, when he was 19 years old or 18 years old, he was a high school miler. He came to Williams College. And I, I actually was the one who gave him the tour and um, he elected eventually to go to Princeton, but he and I remained close over the years. He became a lawyer. And so when he was with USA Track and Field and he was working on their set of anti-doping rules, I decided that you know we would combine forces. So Craig helped me write what became the ITU anti-doping program. Having instituted this program, I then became the what you would call, I guess, the anti-doping commissioner or the czar for the next 13 or 14 years. And in that role, I literally had to oversee the adjudication of every possible positive test around the world. It's a very interesting time. And so much, you know, has happened since then in this world of 
of, of doping and doping control. And it was such a nuanced area. You would read in the media that an athlete had tested positive for a substance. And then you'd find out later on, if you, if you dug deeply, that the opiate that they tested positive for had come from three poppy seed muffins she'd had to carbo load the morning of a, a pre-race meal, right? So right. there are a lot, a lot of nuance here. But it was such interesting times. They were such interesting times. And you were traveling down parallel lines here. So first, let me say thank you. Thank you for all that work you did, because I would categorically state that triathlon as a sport globally has less of what we've come to know as doping and performance-enhancing drug issues than many, if not most, other sports. So credit to you for that for that early work. And while you were doing that early work, you had formed Primal Nutrition and you were on your way to forming as an outgrowth, if you will, of your nutrition company, Primal Kitchen, which led to those high quality, free of everything bad foods that we talked about at the top of the show. So let's sort of fast forward to the earliest days of Primal Kitchen. So I had had this supplement company now for about 15 years and it was doing well. And I was making high-end supplements that I that initially I had designed for athletes, but athletes are notoriously horrible customers of these sorts of products. They all want to be sponsored. I would get calls like, hey Mark, I finished seventh in my age group in the, you know, the Midwest championships. Can you sponsor me? So I wound up selling most of my supplements to people who are interested in the anti-aging movement, which was great because over the years I grew a very successful business doing that. But over time, as I was using Mark's Daily Apple as a platform to talk about food and diet and, and clean eating, and then, by the way, I had these supplements that I was selling on the side, I just had an epiphany in 2014. I mean, like already, already, I would say almost a little late in the game, that I'm writing so much about food and how to make food taste better by putting good sauces and dressings and toppings on it. And I realized there were no companies that were making good sauces, dressings, and toppings. There were some that were purported, you know, sort of self-reporting that they were better for you. But if you did the analysis of the, of the ingredient panel, you would still say, nah, it's not, doesn't, doesn't fit what we're looking for. So we set about, I set about to create a line of products that would use nothing but beneficial ingredients, would not contain any harmful ingredients, tasted great, because that was also a key element to this. And we started with this, like almost by chance, a mayonnaise, which was the first thing that we could make in, in a large enough scale to, to, you know, to satisfy what we perceived to be the demand. The mayonnaise was made with avocado oil, which is the healthiest of all the oils, um, eggs from, from cage-free hens, organic vinegar from non-GMO beets. And it just, uh, you know, we, we launched it in March of 2015, so not that long ago. And, and, you know, it was like, fingers crossed, like it's a 12-ounce jar of mayonnaise that's going to sell for $9.95. It just costs that much right. to, to make it. And is anybody going to buy it? And we sold 10,000 jars in the first two weeks. Love that. I love that. By the way, I am a huge fan of that single product, your first product. And we still use it and have been using it for several years in the house. Love it. And willing to pay the price. <laughs> cool. Well, <laughs> this is what we realized fairly quickly that so much of big food had been allocated or dedicated to creating sort of crunchy, salty, fatty, sweet, palate-pleasing foods that they made with the least expensive ingredients and gave them the best possible margin. And this is not to chastise them. They were basically building food for 
an audience that was craving crunchy, salty, fatty, sweet. But we felt that there was an audience there that was looking for better for you, that had you know, read the books and started to understand the danger of some of these industrial seed oils and some of these additives and, and preservatives and added sugar. And we didn't need a large market to be able to justify making these sorts of products and, and, and charging what we have to charge. And I will say that when we build these products, we start with a blank slate. And, we, and like I will say, here's a salad dressing that others have tried to make, but it's full of crappy ingredients. I like the taste of it, but I will not use it. So let's make one without paying any attention to the cost of the ingredients, make it the best way we can, and then see what it costs after we've made it. Again, we backed our way into the cost and pricing rather than what many of these companies do is say, okay, we're going to try and create a 12-ounce product for $3.99 at retail. Right. And so if it's a $3.99 at retail, then it's going to be, you know, $2.75 at distributor price. And then and you work your way back, you say, well, Jesus, I got, you know, my limits on the ingredients I can use are keeping me to um, you know, crappy sugar and cottonseed oil or or soybean oil or corn oil or any of the cheap oils. And that's how a lot of the food gets made. So anyway, I, I, we we sort of upended that whole paradigm. And now there, you know, there are a lot of pretenders to the throne. There are a lot of competitors coming in, making uh, products similar to ours. And I think that's great. I think a rising tide lifts all boats. And I think if at the end of the day, my goal, which was to change the way the world eats, and particularly 100 million people, um, if I can leverage that through other companies doing similar things, then then I've succeeded in my mission. Absolutely. So the passion for the product, and it was always with you product first. And, and, you know, then let's figure out how to price it. You know, it's a little bit like a Rubik's Cube, right? You get, yeah. you, you don't compromise on the ingredients, but you work around the realities of the marketplace today, ultimately driven by, hey, what are people going to pay for this stuff? Exactly. So you launched this in 2014. It starts with avocado mayonnaise, which is awesome, again unabashed plug. And then from there, you expand the product line into other condiments and sauces and and that sort of thing. And at what point have you reached the scale in Primal Kitchen where you're starting to think, hey, you know, somebody's going to come calling one of these days? Well, you know, we started thinking about, when I say we, I had a, a minority interest partner. When I started the company in 2014, she had been a an advisor to me. She'd been a media consultant and a PR consultant and a marketing consultant. And I liked her so much and I liked her energy and she did have some food background. So she became an equity stakeholder. And so when I say we, the two of us all along had always intended to create this company to be sold to a larger company. However, it was our baby and we didn't want it to be sold and then adulterated or bastardized into, you know, something that didn't resemble what we'd set out to do, which is to be demonstrably the best offering of whatever product we were making in whatever category that was. We wanted to check off all the boxes. So three years in, we started thinking that we're, we were growing so fast. I mean, I'll tell you how fast we grew. The first year with the mayonnaise, which we launched in March, my ex-CEO, who didn't think mayonnaise was a good idea and thought it was like, you know, we should, we should, uh, uh, you know, we should not do that. And I said, I, I really want to do this. And I said, let's put on the budget that we'll do half million in sales this year. He goes, that's crazy. You, you, you know, if you guys do, oh, I said 300. I said, I'm sorry. I said 300. He said that that's crazy. You know, if you do 200, it'll be, it'll be amazing. And I don't think you'll do that. So we did a million seven um, that first year. So that exceeded the budget. We go to the next year thinking, can we do like six? God, that's like asking a lot, isn't it? Four X. 
Well, by June, we'd done 6 million. So halfway into the year, <laughs> halfway into the year, we'd done, we'd done 6 million. So, you know, we grew fairly rapidly. So by the, by the end of the third year, we were starting already to think about if we can, if we can get to, you know, X dollars in sales by the end of the next year, we will be ready to sell the company. It's the sort of volume, right. sort of a minimum volume that companies are looking for. Exactly. So we, we literally, at the end of 2017, started looking at investment bankers, starting interviewing investment bankers for an end of 2018 sale. So we knew that we wanted to do this. And, you know, we basically selected our banker in, I'm going to say, you know, April of 2018, put a book together. By the end of 2018, we had three offers and Kraft Heinz was the one that we selected to buy us. And they've been an amazing partner, like exceeded all expectations. They've basically let us keep doing what we were doing. They haven't interfered at all. They basically said, look, we we just, we bought you because you know what you're doing and we want to watch you and see how you do this and, and learn from you. We're going to give you the resources you know, to do this. So I sold my interest first week of January, 2019, but I stayed on for another two years and then they just signed me up for another five years because I'm having so much fun growing this company and we want to be the preeminent better for you food company in the world. Well, that is such an enlightened approach by the strategic buyer, right? I mean, if you woke up tomorrow and just said, oh yeah, it's Heinz and they're going to let me keep doing what I've been doing, you would probably roll back over and, and go to sleep again because that rarely, if ever happens. So man, huge credit to the buyer here not only to recognize what you had created and filled the niche, but to stay with you and essentially allow your creative passion, your core principles to continue to guide not just the company, but the product line expansion. So how many different products today, Mark, in the Primal Kitchen line? I think like 80, something wow. like that. Wow. I mean, it's, it's, it's a big number because we have, you know, I'm going to say six mayonnaise flavors, 18 salad dressing flavors. We have pasta sauces, barbecue sauces, steak sauce. We have collagen bars. We have protein bars. We have collagen drinks, protein fuel. And again, I have to say from day one, each of these was designed for me, first of all. These, these were all products that I said to myself, I wish this existed. If it existed, I would use this. You know, that's been kind of the driving force of our line extension. We look at products that people want to be eating but are afraid to be consuming because of whatever ingredients are in them. And we ask ourselves, can we build a better version of that that people will feel not just okay about eating, but that in many cases want to use with reckless abandon? Right. You are now a very well-trusted, well-known brand that meets all of the sort of optimal health, nutrition, and if you will, you know, paleo, keto, whole 30 requirements. But because people have tried and come back and they trust you, any new product that comes out branded Primal Kitchen, if people are interested in that particular bit, right, whether it's a barbecue sauce or a, or a collagen powder or a collagen drink, they're going to go, yep, I trust that brand. I'm in. That's it. I mean, and that's the, that's the beauty of brand building. And, and part of my business case study for the Harvard Business School is I spent 10 years building a brand before I launched my first product. That's why we were able to sell 10,000 jars in the first two weeks, for instance. Right. And it was that trust and authenticity that, you know, I'd spent so much time honing over the years with my blog and my books. No kidding. And by the way, you've done an awful lot of things right. 
So that's kind of the setup for one of our regular bits here, which is in the face of all the things you've done right, you had to make some pretty interesting mistakes along the way. So what's the, the one, the one, your favorite mistake that you learned the most from? Well, it's not so much a mistake because there's a lot of mistakes and, and you know, that some of them are like just bad timing and bad luck. But I would say the thing that I learned the most, and I probably learned it a little bit later in life than I would like to have, that it was that I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I'm a pretty smart guy, but when I was running my companies over the years, and I've had, you know, before Primal Nutrition and the supplement company, I was a painting contractor with a lot of employees. You know, I own restaurants, frozen yogurt shops. I've done a lot of things in my life, but I was always thinking of myself as like, okay, I'm I'm up here, I'm the smartest guy, and whoever I hire, I'm going to have to micromanage them. And it wasn't until I hired this gal, Morgan, and I said, look, I'm just going to let you do what you do. And then she hired people under her. And the next thing you know, I'm like, okay, I'm just the brand. I'm the face of the brand, and I've got some interesting ideas. But this entire company is now going to be run by people who know what they're doing and really don't want me interfering. My COO. Rick Wallace, like an amazing hire. The three of us, Morgan, myself, and Rick, you know, grew this company from nothing. And Rick had so much knowledge about, you know, spreadsheets, for instance. And I was just like, okay, if that's how we're going to do this with spreadsheets, because I'm like a, you know, I'm like the creative guy. I'm not like the, and, and yet it was, it was so beneficial and so important to the growth of the company, what he did. Because I stood back and said, I'm, I'm not the smartest guy. I'm going to give you my, you know, my honest opinion, but you guys just go ahead and do it. And that was, that, was a, that was a huge lesson for me. And I wish I'd learned it much earlier on, but, but now I know. Virtually 100% of successful leaders figure that out. It's sort of said another way, do what you're good at, know what you're not good at, and get the best people around you that can fill in those holes. And, and that's what makes you know a puzzle from 10 feet away, look like a Rembrandt. <laughs> yep, exactly, exactly. Okay, so a couple of fun things here. Your favorite female artist, singer, songwriter, band? Anne and Nancy Wilson from Heart. Oh, what a great call. Yeah. Oh man, so many great songs. No, and if your listeners have, you know, one that they really want to exemplify it, they sang Stairway to Heaven at the Led Zeppelin tribute at the Kennedy Center. It's one of the greatest performances of Stairway to Heaven you'll ever hear. And, you know, Robert Plant, you know, he's crying listening to it. I mean, it's just an amazing rendition. Again, um, among many of their other songs. Well, right. But that that's such a huge call out because yeah. there's virtually nobody who's going to listen to this that hasn't that hasn't got Stairway to Heaven etched in their memory <laughs> bank somewhere. Yeah. Good, yeah. good call, Mark. Okay, you're a food guy. You're a manufacturer and you're a creator of food. So your favorite food or dish? Rack of lamb, always. Nice. And which sauce goes on the rack of lamb? Pretty much nothing, I have to say. Uh, Rack of lamb is a standalone meat. But if I have to put something, we'll we'll do like a pistachio and mustard sauce. You know, we have a stone ground mustard that we make at Primal Kitchen. So every once in a while, I have my, uh, my chef prepare a sauce with pistachio and mustard. Nice. Yeah. Going to try that one. So last one, it's an important one. We call it words matter uh, because 
as a leader, what you say, what you don't say, what you do, what you don't do, all of those things are closely watched by your, not only your core team, your leadership team, but every employee in the organization. So so your favorite word and why? So my favorite word is no, because too often I've been tempted to say yes to something that I got excited about, but it wasn't a hell yes. It was a Okay, sure, sounds good. So my favorite word is no, but my second favorite word is yes. Sorry to be you know a bit <laughs> evasive on that, but my friend Andrew, he feels so strong about that that he was inclined at one point to write a book called Knowing Your Way to Success. So <laughs> nice. Yeah. Well, listen, it's binary, right? I mean, a coin has two sides. Your your coin has no as heads and yes as tails. Given go. the day, right? I mean, that yeah, can flip yeah. around. Mark, this has been such a great conversation. You, you said it. You and I could go on for hours here, but thank you so much for being willing to spend the time and tell your story. It's an amazing one. Entirely my pleasure, Carl. You take care now. You too. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Spotify, Google, Pandora, and many others. Please visit our website at thebestbossever.com where you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn. Until next week, remember, words matter.